tonight what I want to do before we get into the biblical text is um, just kind of review some words that I introduced you to at the beginning of the course. But these are words that uh, um, if you've only heard them once or twice, you sort of got an sort of got to review them, review them, review them before they click. So my thinking is that now that we're in week five and we've spent a little bit of time in Revelation, that maybe some of this might make a little more sense to you. Okay, So we're going to kind of review those and then we're going to get into the biblical text and uh, see how far we get tonight. Okay, So let's just start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. We thank you for the gift of life and uh, at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we live in a world filled with pain, and one of the most acute pains we often encounter is is death. And we pray then for Amelia and her family, for Tim, and we just pray that you would comfort them. We also pray for uh, Deb and Bob Gway and their family, that you would comfort them, and that um, uh, the funeral later this week would be an opportunity to minister to uh, to the bereaved and uh, to those that may not know you. Uh, We pray that you'd oversee our conversation tonight. In uh, Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Okay. So, let's talk about these terms. I would like, I would be interested in knowing as we get going, for, for how many of you would these be things you've never heard before? If you've never heard all or some of these words, could you just throw your hand up quick? Can you read them, the back? Okay. So we have amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, and then under premillennial, there's three different branches, uh, pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, or historic post-tribulational. So for some of you, it sounds like that's new, new language. So what we're doing then in, uh, in theology, there's two strands to theology, as I've mentioned before. There's biblical theology, which is where you sort of wrestle with a, a text in the Bible. You look at it in its context. You look at its grammar and its structure and the meaning of words and the characters that may appear in a text and the purposes and all that kind of stuff. You analyze the Greek or the Hebrew, and we call it biblical theology because you're sort of right in a biblical text. Now, the second strand of theology is also biblical, but it's, it's called systematic theology. And that's where we are creating systems of thought from Scripture. So the illustration I might give is uh, uh, the study of the Holy Spirit is one of the systems in theology that we study. And we would then look at all of Scripture, right? And any time it speaks of the Holy Spirit, we would study those texts and then we would systematize them into what we call pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So there's about 10 areas of systematic theology. They They also include uh, the study of uh, the persons of God. So there's the study of God. We call that theology proper. And then there's the study of the Holy Spirit. There's the study of Christ. We have the study of man. We have the study of angels and demons. We have the study of sin and salvation. We have the study of the church. And we have the study of the end times. And the study of the end times, the fancy theological word for that is eschatology. Now that comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means end or last things, and logos, which means words. These are Greek words. So you bring them together and you 
make the Greek letters English and you have eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end times. And we study the end times, then we study uh, things like um, uh, the persons that are relevant to the end times. So how, what role does Satan play? Obviously, what role does God play, Christ play? What, what role does the church play in eschatology? And we also look at timelines. So we try to understand, as we're reading through Revelation, Daniel, and other relevant passages, and we're looking at different events that are prophesied, well, where do they fit? So if we were sort of put them into a timeline, what would that look like? And depending on how you interpret uh, some aspects of apocalyptic literature, you will arrive at different timelines. So these are not things to die for. The, th the one thing you should be willing to die for, which every biblical Christian must affirm, is the second coming of Christ. That's a cardinal doctrine. It's not negotiable. If Jesus isn't coming back, we're all in trouble. So the, the, the idea that Jesus is coming back and this world will end and there is a world yet to come, that's, that's ground zero and that every, every true Christian must believe those things. But there's obviously debate as to when and how and what events will come before other events, etc. So in, throughout the history of the church, there's been and people that have studied this in great detail and they've come up with language to try to express the schemes that they feel best represent uh, the biblical record. And these are in no particular order, but we'll start with amillennialism. So ah is a prefix that negates what comes after. So an atheist is a non-theist, right? So a theist is someone who believes in God. An atheist, we call him an atheist, is, does not believe in God. So this language is a little bit of a misnomer, but essentially an amillennialist does not believe that there will be uh, a thousand-year millennium in the future. So when you read Revelation 19, 20, 21, and it talks about a thousand years and Satan being bound, the post-millennialist and the pre-millennialist will say, no, there's, there's going to be a thousand year or at least a lengthy millennial reign of Christ. In some way, shape, or form, the amillennialist will say that too, but a premillennialist is the only one of these three major headings that believes in a thousand-year reign or something in and around a thousand-year reign. An amillennialist says that the millennial reign of Christ began with in and around the ascension of Christ to heaven and simply refers to a lengthy and indiscriminate amount of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So an amillennialist says then, said another way, that this is the millennium that we're in now. So we are in a, a period of history where Christ is reigning. So it's a very simple, and if you like simple, I guess that would attract you to it, but it's probably not a good reason to be attracted to it. But amillennialism is a very simple eschatological scheme. We have history, 
which is divided more or less into two parts, pre-cross, post-cross. Christ came here and ascended to heaven, and he's coming again. And that's it. There's going to be a second coming, and then the end of all things. So the destruction of the world, the new heavens, the new earth, consignment to heaven or hell, and so forth. So this period of time that we're in now is their understanding of thousands. So clearly we're at 2014, so the, the thousand years is not literal. It's just a, a lengthy period of time. With regard to a tribulation, well, they don't believe there's going to be a tribulation. So you would never ask an amillennialist, do you think we're going before the trib, during, or after? They don't believe in that. They would say that the tribulation in Scripture is to be understood as the pain and suffering that we experience throughout the tunnel of time from the first coming of Christ to the second. Okay? Another interesting aspect of amillennialism is that they would see the promises and the covenants that God made with Israel as being spiritualized and brought into the church. So they would not concern themselves with the state of Israel or whether Israel's in the land or not or whether God has specific promises to Israel that are yet to keep. We are the new Israel in amillennialism. So this is very common, very, very common. Uh, it's probably, probably the dominant view in eschatology today, not so much among evangelicals, but among all Christian groups and denominations. You would find more amillennialists in all of Christianity, if you use the word in its broadest sense, than probably any other view. Um, now, postmillennialism is also relatively simple to understand. So they would also see that, you know, there's, there's life before the cross. And I know those of you in the back, uh, this is going to be hard for you to see, but you chose to sit back there. So, um, so we have the cross. And what I'll do just to help you understand this is I'll draw this second half of the line going upward. And we'll have the same two looped arrows. So the post-millennialist would say that the millennial reign of Christ, yes, also began in and around the, uh, the Christ, Christ first coming. But where they would differ from the amillennialist is they believe that the kingdom of God will increasingly come to earth to use crude language. If I was in a, if we were teaching this in a seminary, we'd be a little more specific. But they would basically say that the world is going to be continually evangelized and the kingdom of God started at the Christ event. And in an increasing way, we're actually going to get to a point in human history where the world as a whole will uh, bow the knee to Christ. Um, so it's very, it's actually the most optimistic of all three views, that the kingdom of God is coming to earth, has come to earth, and that its fullness will be realized before the second coming of Christ. Okay? Now this view, interestingly, is probably the least popular view today, 
In fact, the only post-millennialist I even know personally is a guy by the name of Joe Boot. And uh, he's a rare breed. There's not a lot of post-millennialists today. But post-millennialism was very common when Christi the, the nations that historically identified with Christianity, like Britain, were expanding their empire. Because as they were making inroads with heathens and pagans and all sorts of non-Christians, there was a period in you know, human history just a couple hundred years ago where there was quite a growth of Christian churches. Whether these people are all born again is debatable. So many, because the Western theologians were the ones that were more or less developing the systematic theology of the church, they began to teach that, well, look around you. I mean, clearly people are coming to Christ en masse. And so one of the things I found, found interesting about post-millennialism, my study of it, it was very much influenced by what was taking place in the world, right? Now, premillennialism is considered by some the newest and the oldest of the three groups. Premillennialism is something, is a system of understanding eschatology that really took off uh, through the influence of guys like Schofield and Darby in the mid-1800s and onward. However, premillennialists would say, well, we're really not the new kids in the block because if you study the early church, the early church fathers called themselves Kiliists, which means a thousand. And most premillennialists pre would say that the early, their, their understanding of the earliest church fathers was that they also believed in some sort of a literal millennial period in the future, but they weren't quite sure. They just didn't have time or it wasn't the focus of the church to develop that theology further. Nevertheless, a premillennialist says that there is going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in some way, shape, or form. There's debate as to whether it's literally a thousand to the day or just on an extended period of time. But nevertheless, that sometime prior to that millennial reign, Jesus Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to inaugurate the fullness of his rule on earth during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, like post-millennialism, but future instead of now, the world en masse will follow and serve God. And the lion will lay down with the lamb. There'll be peace among animals. There'll be peace on earth. Christ will fulfill all of his promises to Israel, etc. Now, under premillennialism, there are three, there's more, but there's three common views. And that is that premillennialists generally believe that there's going to be roughly a seven-year tribulation. And the question is, now you want, I want you to listen to this very carefully. All premillennialists believe the church is going to be raptured or Christ is going to return prior to the thousand years. But the question is, in the seven-year period that comes before the thousand years, is the church going to go before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? Now, regardless of what view you choose, it's still premillennial because it's all before the thousand years. But depending on how we read 
Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 19, which I've suggested to you in the past is probably a reference to the seven-year period of time, the 70th week of Daniel. Will the church be vacate, vacate the earth prior to that, halfway through it, when things get really bad, or at the end of it? If you are a premillennialist who says we're going before, then you're what's called a pre-tribulational premillennialist. If you believe we go halfway through, you're called a mid-tribulational premillennialist. If you believe we go after, there's two, two words, you're considered a historic tribulational premillennialist or a post-tribulational premillennialist. And then there's other views. One's called the partial rapture. So there's a, another view. It's not very commonly held. It's called the, the partial rapture premillennial view, and that is that some are going to go uh, prior to, some during, some after, depending on a variety of circumstances. There's also a view that's it's kind of silly language. It's called the popcorn rapture theory that says that at various points in the tribulation, certain groups are going to go as they surrender their lives to Christ. So you can see there's, there's different views. Um, and the most premillennialists, sometimes post-tribbers waver on this a little bit, certainly pre-tribbers and mid-tribbers who are under the premillennial camp tend to be most concerned with the future of national Israel. And so there's another word, to confuse you further, that's added to especially pre-tribulational premillennialism, and that's dispensationalism. So I would consider myself a dispensational pre-tribulational premillennialist. <laughs> but then under, and I'll describe tr dispensationalism. So dispensationalism historically divided human history into different eras known as dispensations. And so they would look at, well, how did God work with people before the fall? How did God work with people from, let's say, the fall to Noah? How did God work with people from Noah to Abraham? How did God work with people from, you know, Abraham to the Exodus, from the Exodus? They would divide it up into so many different branches. And they came up with a very complicated system of all these different dispensations and how God is working in different ways with people to fulfill his prophetic plan. Now, more recently, um, di most dispensationalists have sort of said, you know what, that's too complicated. You're sort of over-systematizing scripture, so we're just going to kind of simplify it. And so now there is a whole camp, of which I would be part, called progressive dispensationalists who are pre-tribulational premillennialists. Okay? So I don't know which one you are, but... <laughs> Yeah, so Jack just asked a question. All of these views believe in the second coming of Christ. And um, therefore, you can be an evangelical Bible-believing Christian and land in any one of these camps. But there are some preachable points or practical implications to what you arrive at. So questions of uh, you know, Israel. It's going to be answered very differently depending on what camp you 
So you can't say I'm an amillennialist, but I'm pro the state of Israel. It doesn't make sense. You're not. Or when you're preaching on the wrath to come, the tribulation to come, it's, it's you know, people will say, like, is there going to be a, a period of time in the future where the, the church is essentially going to be slaughtered and, you know, we're going to go through hell on earth, or will be, we be rescued from that? And so, Thess- you know, First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians talks about the wrath to come. Is that referring to, you know, the general everyday wrath that we experience? Well, if it does, then you're probably an amillennialist. If it refers to the wrath, as in the stuff we're reading about in Revelation, then you're probably a pre- pre-tribber. So, um, these are sort of the, the, sis- the basic systems. And again, we're just kind of being very basic. It might sound not so basic to you, but there's, there's a lot more detail to it that one could add. But I wanted to remind you of these views so that, um, you know, as you sort of think about what the task of biblical theology, which really is the focus of this course, you still have an understanding about the systems that are beside and undergird a lot of this kind of teaching. By the way, at our church, you could hold to any of these views and be uh, welcome here. There, that's probably not the case with, uh, you know, most evangelical churches pre-1960. You pretty much had to, most of them would say, you know, this is where we're at, and if you want to be a member, you have to believe in it. So premillennial pre-tribulationalism is the dominant view today in um, Pentecostal, Baptist, and Brethren churches. at the very least, especially with Pentecostals and brethren. Baptists haven't quite as been, Baptists haven't historically been as uh, unified on these issues. But most brethren churches and most Pentecostal churches have been very very much interested in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensational understanding of Scripture. So any questions or comments? Well, you know, it's it's interesting when you when you actually study the scripture in a very deep and detailed way, uh you probably will become increasingly convinced of one one view. For, for me, I even when I don't think about this for lengthy periods of time, but I go back and I study the scripture, for me personally, but I, I could be completely wrong on this. Okay, I'm not wrong on my doctrine of salvation or God, I know that. But this I, this I could be. But to me, pre-trib, pre-mill dispensationalism makes a lot of sense. But you know, I have good friends for whom amillennialism makes a whole lot of sense. And they're not just words that people have made up. I mean, these are systems that people have devised to try to understand what they're actually reading in Scripture. So they're not sort of made-up stuff. The words are made up, but they're trying to describe something that people see in Scripture. And, um, you know, they do affect the way you'll preach or handle certain texts of Scripture, without question. Or uh, the way you'll... They, they, all of them have political implications. 
you know, is the kingdom of God coming to earth? They have mis missionary implications. So the guy that goes out as a missionary who's a post-millennialist is far more optimistic than anyone else. But you don't pick a view because you like it the best. Yeah, I know you're sort of speaking tongue-in-cheek, right? <laughs> but you don't pick a view because, oh, I hope we don't meet the, you know, the Antichrist, so I'm going to go with the pre-trib view. Because your sentiment doesn't affect the plans and promises of God, or purposes of God, I should say. Okay, any other comments or questions? Yeah, Dela? Yeah, there could be some tie-ins there. I was just immediately thinking, I don't know if they would even be familiar with this language, but um, king, the kingdom of God actually is a very fascinating doctrine. We sing songs all the time that actually speak of the kingdom of God, both in modern hymnology and in older hymnology. There's a lot of kingdom language. We speak of Christ the king. We speak of You'll, you'll hear hymns that talks about uh, the victorious church, or there's an old hymn called the Macedonian Call. That's a post-millennial hymn. Most people sing it even if they're pre-tribbers, but it's actually post-millennial. Um, so there's different hymns and different uh, ideas taught in Scripture about the kingdom of God. And the big question is, like historically back in the day, let's say 100 years ago, all pre-tribbers and the, the classical dispensationalists, they said the kingdom of God is entirely future. The amillennialists and the post-millennialists said, no, no there's, the kingdom of God is now and future. And the most premillennialists nowadays actually agree with the post-millers and the amillers on that. That I may not believe that the fullness of the kingdom of God is ever going to come up upon this world. But I, will, I do preach that the kingdom of God is now but not yet. That there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is now, meaning that God, through Christ, has done everything necessary to redeem man to himself. And that Christ is king. He is not a loser. He's the winner. And that he rules and he reigns and he controls sovereignly all the affairs of, of men. But the fullness of God's kingdom is not yet evident. That's not yet so in the new heavens and the new earth, the fullness of the kingdom of God will be evident. So in modern progressive dispensationalism, we talk about now but not yet theology. That there is a tension between the kingdom of God now but not yet. It's now, but it's also eschatological. And to me, that makes the most sense because I can't deny the fact that Jesus actually did accomplish something in crushing the serpent on the cross and that he is the ruler of this world, and that he is king, and he is sovereign. But the fullness of his reign is not yet evident to you and I, and that's why we still have suffering and pain and death and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't believe necessarily that the kingdom of God is more here than it was in 1000 AD, like a post-millennialist would say. But from the first coming to Christ, from the first coming of Christ till the second, we are in the kingdom age, but we will be more fully in the kingdom age with the millennium and the future reign of Christ in, in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the outline. Now, by the way, just a few more little tips. 
if you're a pre-tribber, there's different events that are going to take place. So a pre-tribber then breaks the, the tribulation down into two segments. The first three and a half years were some figure known as the Antichrist. I mean, that's not necessarily going to be on his name tag. But he will be functioning as one who is opposed to Christ. Is going to more or less dupe the world into some sort of global peace make people all kind of come together and everything's great and hunky-dory, but he will reveal his true colors halfway through and then the, his true evil self will be in some way unleashed upon humanity and there'll be all sorts of nastiness and there'll be two witnesses that are slaughtered in the street and so forth and so on. At the end of the tribulation, Christ will come back with the church and with all believers that he's raptured prior to or that have been raised to eternal life prior to that. And there will be uh, some sort of uh, battle. And that uh, battle, whether it's literally in this location or not, uh, is historically been known as the Battle of Armageddon. And Armageddon is a English word that is, um, I don't want to use the word slang, but it's been modified or twisted in the course of time. It actually refers to a particular city in middle northern Israel called Megiddo. And Megiddo is a place where historically when armies would flow to the north, they would, you pretty much have to go in or around Megiddo to get through. So there was a lot of battles that took place at Megiddo. So Megiddo stands fairly high out of the ground because it's been ransacked so many times and rebuilt. And to the uh, southeast of Megiddo is a large open field, essentially, of several hundred, probably several thousand acres. And uh, depending on how literal or not you want to get, either that location prefigures or symbolically represents the Battle of Armageddon, or perhaps there will literally be a global battle on that turf known as Armageddon, where the forces of darkness will shake their fists at the forces of the king, but they will be quickly s squashed. And then they will be consigned to hell. Then Christ will reign out of Jerusalem for the millennial, uh, for the thousand year millennium. And during that time, he will demonstrate his power over all the earth by literally reigning it and by fulfilling his promises to Israel. At the end of that period of time, the devil and the demonic hordes that he holds sway over will be released from the abyss and there will be one final cataclysmic battle which in pre-tribulational thinking is known as the battle of Gog and Magog. So the battle of Gog and Magog, these were two ancient towns that were very evil that represented everything you wouldn't want in your life if you're following God and again those, this final battle is basically named after those evil cities, the Battle of Gog and Magog. And that's when, at the end of that battle, uh, the, the earth and the heavens and the universe that we currently live in will be literally wiped away. And there will be uh, a judgment at which the unbelievers and the demonic hordes will be consigned to the lake of fire for all of eternity. So hell will be dumped into the lake of fire.
and believers will receive their reward by uh, coming back from what we call heaven and living out the rest of eternity on what's known as the new heavens and the new earth. So it'll be like a back to Eden kind of experience, but there won't be a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There won't be a serpent tempting us and that will be the eternal state of all things forever and ever and ever. So you see there's a lot of, there's a lot of detail in there, right? But um, that's sort of a s simplified lineup of events that persons like myself would generally subscribe to. Well, if you're a post-miller or an amillennial thinker, you are. The, 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 the tribulation is a, uh, it's not so much of a tribulation, it's just tribulation that we're experiencing on an ongoing daily basis. Now, everybody who's a Christian in this room that's been saved for longer than 48 hours knows that we do experience tribulation. But if the events of revelation are in any way, shape, or form, even remotely literal. There's a lot of things being described in chapters 4 to 19 that I don't think we've seen yet. Or that we would really have to stretch and make them very metaphorical in order to try to fit in, which is possible, but then you would fall more into the idealistic camp rather than the futurist camp in term, terms of how you'd handle it. Like now? Within the last three and a half years. If it's a little possible. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so I guess if you're a mid-tribber, you could hold to the view that this particular point in history is part of the first half of the tribulation. We're just sort of being lulled to sleep. <laughs> and I mean, that's that'll be proven wrong in three and a half years or less, for sure. <laughs> Or proven right. Yeah. And, you know, we have all these people that predict certain dates. Yeah. And there's all 100% of them prove wrong predictions. Yeah. But theoretically, it's possible. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Good. Okay. As a Christian, I don't have to be pre trip, mid trip, post trip, or anything like that. I just care about. You're like God's coming back. So you're a you're a pan you're a pan tribulationalist. Pan pan tribulation. It'll all pan pan out in the end. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, don't, I don't care about necessarily when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. I, I, all I care about he's coming back. He's coming back in his glory yeah. and stuff like that. You know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I can wait. I can wait till post trip or go whenever. You know. You're, so. you're ready for anything. It's <laughs> good. It's good. Yeah. yeah well, let let me respond to your uh, statement this way, and that is that. At the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Okay. However, if the Bible has a book called Revelation, and if that book is in any way valuable to us, then we've got to do something with it. We can't just say, well, that's Christianity 302, and I want to stay at 102, <laughs> right? So, I mean, 102 is second coming of Christ, but, and, and at the end of the day, that is sufficient for 
salvation, to, to affirm the second coming of Christ. So most of us then are not going to live every day really all that worried about it. Um, but because we generally have at least a few years to study the Bible before we die, and the Bible is complex, and it talks about some interesting things, I, th I don't think we should be dismissive of these kinds of things. Because the Holy Spirit thought it was valuable enough to speak about these kinds of things and to pass this information on to us. So it's kind of like, and we, could, we could apply this same mindset to any doctrine. So every biblical Christian that I know of believes that we are indwelt with the Spirit. But we may quibble over speaking in tongues or what that means or what that looks like. And we may hold firmly to a particular view, but I don't know of a whole lot of Christians in Canada in 2014 that are going to say, if you don't agree with my view on that, you're going to hell. So it's important to talk about because the Bible uses that language, but the, the particular conclusion that we arrive at, yeah, it's not a, it's not a cardinal verity. We could talk about baptism. I, I am a firm proponent in believer's baptism. But there are reformed thinkers that try to make some pretty good, view, pretty good arguments for a, cov a covenantal view of baptism, that baptism has replaced circumcision, and that therefore it should be initiated on youngsters. I don't believe that to be true, but it's not a heaven or hell issue for me. So in any doctrine, there's the, there's the core that you sort of have to believe in order to be even remotely biblical, but then there's circles, I suppose you could say, of detail. Sometimes we get too detailed. Uh, we get into speculative theology, which is like the third category. But we should still, nevertheless, try to understand as best as we can, uh, you know, however many circles we can go out, it's, it's going to be good for us. You may get to the third circle and say, that's enough for me. But <laughs> someone else may want to go to the fifth circle, right? So, yeah, but I, I understand your, your sentiment. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Who wants to go before? Who would love to live through it? Okay. okay. Who feels that they're living through it? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here we have Jesus' vision and commission, which is recorded in passages like Matthew 28, for his early disciples to go out and evangelize the world coming to fruition. In Jesus' day, the church 
was a Jewish church. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, it was still a Jewish, very Jewish church. But due to the missionary efforts of men like Paul, and missionaries even up till today, the church is actually now predominantly a Gentile church, composed of people from all nations. And it's taken a couple millennia to get there. As we look at this passage of Scripture, if it indeed does refer to the future, it makes a lot of sense, because the biblical vision is that in heaven, one day, there will be people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In our generation, this is an interesting thing for us to think about. You know, what composes a tribe? What composes a language? How specific? Does this mean that literally every single tribe in Papua New Guinea, there's still a few that have not yet been reached, are going to be reached? If it is true that every single micro-tribe is going to be reached, then I can guarantee a Christ is not coming back this year because they have not yet been reached. So there's debates as to how specific is he being here. You know, how does we break down the world into nations and, well, we start with continents or hemispheres and continents and then countries, and like in our country we have provinces and then we have counties and then municipalities and cities and, and within our city, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different people groups. You know, the, the city of Toronto has 165 uh, different ethnic groups speak 165 different languages as their first language. One of the most, if not the most, ethnically diverse city in the world. It's bigger than Chicago now. It grew by 100,000 people last year, largely due to immigration. <clears throat> a lot of diversity, a lot of different tribes. Uh, the world has become smaller in some ways because the tribes are blending. It's also a great gospel opportunity for us. Not that we are uh, downplaying foreign missions, but doing missionary work in Canada is foreign missions because the world lives on our street, our streets now, literally. They live on my street. And the biblical vision is that people from all these different groups will uh, be converted to Christ. And if the passages that were, the passage that we're in now is uh, during a literal seven-year tribulation, then this will be fulfilled fully during this period of great wrath on earth. Now, in contrast to the national leaders who hide in caves, thinking back to last week's passages, people from all nations come forth to worship the Lamb. So do you notice there's a bit of, of a division in the book of Revelation between the national leaders and the run-of-the-mill people? The national leaders tend to represent those that are concerned with power, and they're the ones hiding out in the caves, uh, previous in the biblical text, because they've shaken their fist at God or created their own kingdoms and not honored God. But the people, small nations, are coming to worship the Lamb. Another thing that is interesting about this passage is it is reminiscent of an event that took place during Jesus' time on earth. Which event was it? 
So in your head, when you hear palm branches in their hands, a great multitude crying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. What does that sound like? The triumphant en triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, where Christ came on the colt to the gates of Jerusalem to declare his kingship. In part, that kingship was recognized and affirmed, but not fully. Now, but not yet. Christ was fully king on that colt. He wasn't 60% king. He was fully king. He was declaring his kingship. He was inaugurating his kingdom. But that kingdom that he inaugurated was not fully recognized or affirmed or made evident to the global community. But in the eschaton, the end times, that event, I think, prefigures this future event where now the nations will, in fact, bring the palm branches back, but now they will fully recognize the kingship of Christ and all that he is. So here's the thing. Those that try to place this vision in the first century, and we've looked at different eschatological schemes that have, have attempted to do that. Those that have tried to take the, the events of Revelation and say, no, this is first century stuff. This is all stuff in and around the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, really have to stretch the text and take it very figuratively, very metaphorically, for the simple reason that there, to the best of our knowledge, has been no historical event in all of human history up till today that looks like this. There might have been some Jews that came running out of Jerusalem with palm branches, but can you think of any event in the last 2,000 years where people from all nations and tribes and languages came to Christ and waved palm branches and recognized his authority. So again, further evidence that I believe this is an eschatological text rather than a historical record. The angels then join in on the worship. So we have the sphere of worshipers enlarged beyond humanity to include angelic beings. And I think that it's probably deliberate that they worship him using seven words. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Seven words. Seven we've already learned in the book of Revelation is clearly a number of perfection. So even in worshiping him, they choose the perfect number of words, seven words, ascribe seven attributes to God. I already showed you another example of this in chapter 5, verse 12, where exactly seven words, they're not all the exact same words that we find here. I think one or two of them are different. But also seven words ascribing attributes to God. So seven attributes, again, causes the listener or the reader to be reminded of the fact that this is a perfect God who is being worshipped with these seven words. Verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So John has a Q&A with the, the elder. 
And the elder reveals that the ones under the altar that we've encountered previously, who are clothed in white, but who are, whom are, who are disembodied human beings, presumably, are martyrs during the Great Tribulation, which again causes me to think that the Tribulation is probably somewhat literal and is taking place during the time of this revelation, this vision that John is receiving. They, we know that their uh, white clothes represent perfection. So they've washed their robes. Presumably there's a sense in which they were soiled, representing sin. But the white ones represent perfection. And there's sort of a mixing of, uh, of color here. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you actually were to wash something in blood, it wouldn't come out white? But because of our understanding of the significance of the blood of Christ as a symbolic of, it's more than symbolic, it is our perfection. The, the, the clothes of this, the, the saints are perfected and made white based upon the red blood of Christ. Verse 15 to 17, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's an interesting mixture of words, that the lamb is their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So verses 15 to, uh, sorry, verses 5 to 17 really capture for us, in a nutshell, the historic Christian understanding of heaven. It is a place where the following elements will be present. Number one, there will be perpetual worship, and you'll never get bored of it. I think our, not that we want to think of worship strictly as music, okay, because worship is far more than music. But in our churches, we often call our musicians our worship team, right, or our worship leaders. It's a bit of a misnomer because preachers are also worship leaders. So are the people that collect the offerings. So are the people that greet you. Right? But even if you were to restrict worship to great music, I think we have some pretty good musicians here. But if we had to listen to them for 10,000 times 10,000 years, pr probably get a little bored. <laughs> but somehow in the future, we will be able to worship God without end and never yawn. And I don't even know what that's going to look like, because I can't even imagine that. But that's, that's the vision that we have of the future. So number one, there will be perpetual worship. Number two, there will be a lack of things like hunger and thirst, which have been, you know, maybe, maybe for those of us living in this little slice of time called... Uh, you know, the, the, the 20th, the 21st century in Canada, we don't think a lot about hunger and thirst, but that's been on the forefront of most people's minds since the beginning of time. It's sort of a, a, a given that people will grow, go hungry and thirst, but in the end of all things, that, that perpetual problem will be solved. Extreme weather temps and tears will no longer mark our lives. And this same language is picked up in the last couple chapters of Revelation where it talks about there will be no more tears, no more crying, for the old order of things have passed away. One question that Christians often 
fixate on is how is it possible for me to be in heaven for all of eternity and worship God without tears when there have been people I've loved, perhaps people I've been related to that are in hell? And I don't know, but I know we won't be crying about it. I'm not sure how our mindset will change or what level of knowledge we'll have or how that will be all reconciled, but there will be no regrets in heaven. So therefore, while it's an interesting question, it's really not one that needs to eat up a lot of our thinking because somehow we'll be okay with that or maybe not thinking about it in some way, shape, or form. Now, the martyrs, of course, who've been martyred during the tribulation, this great tribulation spoken of, are experiencing this, are described as ones who are experiencing this even before the culmination of all of these things. So this, this helps us to understand, by the way, that there is consciousness in heaven even before the culmination of all things. There is a debate in the Christian church as to whether we will be conscious between the time of our death and the end times. So there are some, there are some that promote a view called soul sleep. If you die today, you will enter into a period of soul sleep where you're not going to be in hell, but you're going to be unconscious until such time as the end, depending on your view. Sometime in the future, you'll be raised to life and you'll be conscious. But passages like this on top of Paul's teaching in Philippians 1, to be absent from the Lord is to be present with Christ, causes us to conclude that when you close your eyes in death, you open your eyes in heaven. And that it's an instantaneous transfer. Now, this... Uh, teaching is all part of the parentheses. So what have we been looking at? If you go back in your notes, we've been looking at the seven seals. And the first seals, the first four seals represented four horses. The white horse known as the conqueror, the red horse representing war, the black horse representing famine, and the pale corpse-colored horse representing death. Then the fifth seal uh, focused in on the martyrs under the altar crying out for justice. How long, Lord, before we get justice? The sixth seal is the wrath of the lamb toward evildoers. And then before we get into this, got to the seventh seal, we got all this other interesting information. The four angels who were waiting to wreak havoc until such time as believers were sealed, the sealed believers were brought in. The 144,000, we had some conversation there about what that represents and the fact that there's 12 tribes of Israel, but Dan is missing from the list and Joseph, Joseph's one son is missing from the list and Joseph is one of the tribes that's mentioned in the text, which is unusual, and we talked about some reasons why that might be. And then we talked about this, this vision that's, that seems and sounds a lot like what took place at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And now we're back to the seals again. And now we're looking at the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is uh, 
I, I just called this heading the seventh seal and the prayers of the saints. So now we have the lamb. So back to the, our vision of heaven. Again, you got to visualize this stuff to remember it. So John's in heaven. Seven seals are brought out. Nobody can open these seals. There's tears and all of a sudden the lamb steps forward and he's able to crack the seals and open, open them up. So he's opened one, two, three, four, five, six. We have the parentheses. Now the seventh seal. So now we have this moment of waiting coming to pass when the lamb opened the seventh seal. And then it says, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Incense and and prayers are often matched up in biblical thought. On the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So let's break this down a little bit. Chapter 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So here we have, uh, after, after the seven seals are opened, uh, seven trumpets are blown one at a time by these angelic beings. And each of these trumpet blasts heralds some sort of a cataclysmic event. So now under the seventh trumpet, seventh trumpet, we have, or sorry, seventh seal, we now have seven trumpets being blasted. So it's, it's further broken down. Now, before we look at the seven trumpets and their suggested meaning, I want to introduce you to a couple of, um, <clears throat> couple of basic views. So the first view would, would suit these systems. The second view would suit this system. So those that uh, see the tribulation as uh, non-literal or historical believe that um, these seven trumpets represent either seven heretics or perhaps even seven nations that attacked Rome in the past. So Rome, in the mind of a first century Christian, represented Antichrist, with a small a, that which was opposed to Christ. Big world power, clobbering everybody, showing off, arrogant, prideful, wealthy, everything that, was, that Rome represented was considered antichrist, just like for the Old Testament believer, Babylon represented everything that was anti-Yahweh. So some people that don't believe in a literal tribulation have suggested that these seven uh, trumpets, which are going to be tied to judgment, in some way represent maybe God's historical judgment upon seven nations that historically opposed him, or maybe seven early heretics in the church, meaning people who were guilty of false teaching, who God judged. And then premillennialists would suggest that because we're talking about the tribulation here, that th this is some sort of judgment that will take place during the tribulation era. So what do we know? Uh, we know there's a first trumpet. And as a result of the blowing of this first trumpet, one third of the earth is destroyed. 
Verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed a hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. So again, you got to sort of visualize this kind of gross. Hail, fire, so that's scary stuff, and then like blood everywhere. It's, it's kind of hideous. These are thrown upon the earth. And then a third of the earth is burned up, and a third of the trees are burned up, and all the grass is burned up. Can you think of other periods in human history where God destroyed the earth or portions of the earth using these kinds of physical judgments? Okay, good. How about ones that are recorded in the scriptures, though? Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah would be one. Um, The flood. How about Exodus? So when God is judging Egypt, actually very similar language between the events of the plagues of Egypt in here. They actually parallel the plagues of Exodus chapter 9. Now, these could be literal or figurative, or if literal is over here and figurative is over here, somewhere in between, partly literal, partly figurative. So even if we're more literal in our understanding of the timeline of Revelation, doesn't mean we have to also be literal in every detail. I mean, there's, there's some latitude because we're dealing with a genre of literature that by definition is apocalyptic and visionary. Fire sounds more literal than blood. I'm sure you'd agree with me. To see fire burn up a portion of the earth is, we kind of get that because we've seen it. To see gallons of blood being splashed everywhere, maybe that's going to take place, but it doesn't sound as literal. But it still makes an impression upon your soul of fear and judgment if you're an unbeliever. Now, there's no way to determine, of course, what third of the earth is going to be burned up. Some people like to go into a lot of conjecture conjecture and say, well, clearly it's the Middle East or uh, pagan Europe or, you know, whatever it might be. They try to kind of overread, and we just don't know. So that's where we get into a lot of speculation. Nevertheless, it says a third of the earth is going to be destroyed. Then the second trumpet is blown, and now it says a third of the sea and a third of the creatures and a third of the boats on the sea are going to be destroyed. So the second angel blows his trumpet. This is verse 8. And something like a great mountain. Notice it says something like. So he's, he's having a vision. He doesn't otherwise know how to describe it, but something like a great mountain burning with fire, is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. Again, that's actually reminiscent of the Nile turning to blood in, uh, in Egypt. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this, again, parallels the judgments of uh, the Exodus event. Some have tried to uh, read great detail into the text. I don't think they're justified, but some have suggested that the mountain represents Rome, and the ships represent organized religion or religious organizations. We, we do need to be a little bit careful, though, not to press the details, I think. While the details might mean that, being that we have no evidence for it or 
no hints. We don't even have any hints that that's necessarily the case. We need, we need to be a little bit careful. We have the third trumpet that's blown, and then in that event, a third of the waters are made bitter. Now, this is, this is interesting language. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, so the word Wormwood is used twice. It's used as a name of the star, but then it's also used more in an adjectival sense to describe the effects of it on the waters. So uh, Wormwood with sort of the capital W is in our English Bibles, maybe a meteor or some other object falling from space that is named basically bitter because it brings about a bitter result. Um, the idea of bitter waters, however, this is not the first place they appear in the scriptures. I want to take you back to Exodus 15. So the, the Israelis are out in the, the desert. Um, verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they met in the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which evidently means bitter. And then in verse 25, uh, the people grumbled, cried like they have a tendency to do. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So in both of these, both this event and in Revelation, the, the reader is given language. Let me, let me put it this way. In Revelation, the reader is given a description of an event that sounds similar to something that has happened in the past. And this is one of the, the uh, characteristics of apocalyptic literature doesn't necessarily mean it's the same event. You shouldn't tie them too closely together. But often the language, the metaphors, the imagery of Revelation by itself is difficult to understand until you try to tie it in or parallel it to something that has taken place previous in biblical history. And in both situations, bitter water is associated with, with, uh, with judgment, with God's wrath. Uh, and I'm not sure if, if it um, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to try to identify a star or a meteor by the name of Wormwood or, or make too much of that word. But both, both in the Exodus event and in the Revelation event, the bitter waters are given a name. Mara, Wormwood. Perhaps for no other reason than to drive home the idea in your head. You, you tend to remember a name or something that is named rather than something that is merely described. So it wants to sort of drive it home that the waters will be made bitter and the imagery that's used, the name that's used is, is the idea of wormwood. Now what, what we'll do here is we'll just take our, our break at this time and then we'll 
look at the fourth trumpet. So let's take about 10 minutes. I think there's some refreshments in the hallway. And we'll call you back in uh, just a few minutes. Okay, so now we have, we're on to the fourth trumpet. And the fourth trumpet is uh, associated with a third of the sun and the moon being destroyed. So it says, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, here's where we have to be a little bit careful, because you notice it's a third, 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 right? Well... If you're talking to like a, 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 a critical person, an atheist, you're going to say, well, what's the tie-in between a third of the moon being darkened and a third of the sun being darkened and a third of the day? I mean, wouldn't it be, make more sense to say, well, if a third of the sun and a third of the moon are darkened, then you'd have like 66% light instead of 100% light, but you wouldn't have like a third of the day dark just because a third of the sun. Well, what about the other two-thirds? Do they still have regular light, even though a third of the sun's burnt out? So we don't want to stretch this too far and say, well, it, this is exactly how it's going to happen. This, it's going to be a third, a third, a third, a third, a third. Again, we have some wiggle room because of the genre of... We're not trying to play games. But we have some wiggle room because we're dealing with apocalyptic. What we w probably are intended to take away from this is not so much scientific questions. Well, how can a third of the sun be destroyed? That's scientifically impossible. Or how can a third of the moon? Blah, 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 blah. But that in the end of all things, one of the other recipients of God's destructive forces is the cosmos itself. Normally, when we think of... Uh, the effects of sin, we focus in on the effects of sin upon humanity. But the Bible broadens out the effects of sin to include the created order. That lions don't act today like they did in Eden. Squirrels don't act today like they did in Eden. Stars don't shine today like they did in Eden, etc. That the world itself, the universe, is uh, affected by the fall of mankind as co-regents, as stewards of the created world, that there's ripple effects on our world. And while there are those that like to focus in on, uh, thank you for the text, whoever sent that. It says, you're a jerk. No. <laughs> uh, while a, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> oh, yes. You know how you have, um, you have a lot of groups, and I, and I don't write these groups off. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not one of those, yeah, right, what are you guys talking about kind of guys. But there's a lot of people that are very concerned about uh, the ozone, about uh, extinction of species, about uh, climate change, and on and on and on and on. And I mean, obviously, you don't have to be a Christian to say, yeah, I'd rather live in as healthy of a world as possible than a polluted, run-down world. So I'm not going to go dump oil in, in the lake. I'm not going to you know, change my oil and dump it in my driveway or pour it down the sewer. I'm not going to throw garbage around. Like, why would I do that? Isn't, you don't have to be a Christian to say, I don't want to live in a world with garbage blowing down the street. However, 
from a Christian perspective, none of the ecological problems that we see should surprise us, shouldn't surprise us. We may want to, just like we try to constrain sin and the, the full expression of sin in our world by standing for justice and morality, we know that it's going to keep pushing forward and going to get worse and worse and worse. So while we might stand up for you know, heterosexual Christian marriage, we're not going to ultimately win those kind of art, those battles because the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. While we want to evangelize the world, ultimately we're not going to do that because there's going to be people that are going to increasingly push for their schedules. So the Christian faith is unique in that uh, on one hand we're triumphalistic, but on the other hand we're not. We continue to fight, we continue to push forward, but we know the world is getting worse and worse, unless you're a post-millennialist, right? Um, So we see the world getting worse and worse and worse, and, and we understand that. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the created order is going to get worse and worse and worse too. That there's going to be stars burning out and, you know, scientists talk about all these catastrophic things that should happen. Well, the Bible talks about that. You didn't make that up. John saw that 2,000 years ago. So in, in texts like this, there is this sense that the cosmos itself is impacted by sin. So that's where we're going to see stars exploding or... Uh, ozone thinning, and, and yeah, we could trace it back to a, a human cause or a scientific cause and affirm those causes, but through spiritual eyes also realize that that's, that's part of the nature of things as the world increasingly comes to its close. Now, there are some that see this in a highly symbolic way, So they would say that the sun and the stars does not refer to the cosmos, but refers to human government. But a more literal, and I I hate to use the word literal because I've already suggested it's not literal in a sense, but maybe a more surface reading of the text would suggest some sort of a pending collapse of the heavens, as we call them, or the, the cosmos. God's power in passages like Psalm 19 is described using references to his handiwork. So f- just flip over to Psalm 19. It's, it's a psalm that you probably should be familiar with because it, it, speaks, uh, it helps us to build what we call the doctrine of general revelation, that God doesn't just reveal himself through spirit, word, prophet, apostle, miracle, but he actually reveals aspects of his grandeur through his creation. A a very rough analogy would be to say that if you're an oil painter and you have a hundred paintings down this wall and around the room, that if someone has never met you, never seen you, they might be able to walk down and observe all of these paintings and get some understanding of what goes on inside your head. Or, uh, Anything that you build or construct or design, for someone to see that will tell them something about you. So if you see something that's like really neat and tidy and particular and meticulous, generally it's probably not a sloppy, haphazard person. It's probably a meticulous person that developed that. Or if something's kind of sloppy and whatnot, they're either really young or they're not that kind of a person. So the point is, is what you create reflects an aspect of you and on a much greater level, the world around us reflects aspects of God. 
And passages like the Psalms, Psalm 19 remind us of that. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaims his handiwork. And then I like this language because it, it, it stresses how self-evident that is. You don't really have to go looking for it. It says day after day they pour out speech. Now, not literally words, but there's a sense in which the created world is speaking to us. There's a God. He's majestic. He's beautiful. He's holy. He's creative. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice, whose voice is not heard. That means that the... Uh, you know, we're talking about our theology of salvation. That means that there, there are no human beings in any part of the world, no matter how remote, that have not at least encountered general revelation. And having suppressed the truth of the eternal God, Romans 1, they are damnable even if they've never experienced special revelation, i.e. Bible, gospel proclamation. Because even the... The person living in, you know, quote-unquote, deepest, darkest Africa in 1700 AD, who never had a chance to read a Bible, never had a chance, never had a chance to hear a missionary, has still suppressed the truth of the eternal God because the eternal God has poured forth him, uh, a basic knowledge of himself through the created world, and one is culpable to respond to that general revelation. And while we don't want to presumed to know the character or the, um, the plans of God, uh, theoretically, if a person were to respond to God's special revelation of himself, I believe they will also receive, or sorry, general revelation, they will also receive sufficient special revelation to believe. But the problem is that's not what human beings do. They suppress the truth of the eternal God because of their unrighteousness. So it's a, theolog it's a theoretical construct. It's not... Uh, a real construct. It wouldn't happen that way because we all suppress the truth of God. Even those of us that have received special revelation suppress the truth of God apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to enlighten us to truth. Anyway, that's another conversation. So Psalm 19 talks about God's revelation of himself through creation and the destruction of his handiwork. What does that refer to then? So if God, Psalm 19 creates, reveals, if what he's created and revealed is now being pulled back, destroyed, what's the message to the listener? Pardon me? Better hurry. Better hurry. Fed up. Fed up. The removal of his hand overseeing even that which is created, again, speaks of his wrath being poured out. So when you think of the seven trumpets, you think of wrath, the declaration of wrath. So this is, we're in a wrath passage of the Bible. By the way, um, <clears throat> if, if you ever hear a Christian preacher or just a run-of-the-mill Christian, whether they've been saved for a week or a couple decades, react to the idea that God judges sin or God is a God of wrath, it's because they've spent all of their time and only their time in John 3 or in 1 John. Because from one cover to the, from one cover, Genesis, through the final cover, Revelation, the Christian God is described as a God of wrath. That's, that's n it's never, it's not appropriate to think of the God of the Old Testament as a God of law and a stern God who suddenly 
matured or, you know, got in touch with his feminine side <laughs> in the New Testament. Um, he is both a God of love and wrath throughout, throughout the revelation of himself in Scripture. And we would much appreciate to, much more appreciate receiving, um, uh, experiencing God's love and mercy. And, but he is a God of wrath too, in both Testaments, in fact. So, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. Again, strange imagery. Eagles don't have voices, at least not these kinds of voices that speak words. As it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. Now the eagle might be a bird or the eagle might be an angel described in bird-like form. And this angel or eagle, whatever it might be, the celestial being, is a harbinger of woes, just like the Old Testament prophets were. You read through the Old Testament prophets, you're going to come across the word woe. A woe is not like slow down and stop so much as God's on his way and he's got a big hammer and you better shape up because he's, he's, you're going to experience his wrath. So this idea of woe is probably taken out of the prophetic literature. So the, these woes are reminiscent of Old Testament prophets who also prophesied judgment, uh, pending judgment against evildoers. So that's the f- substance of the fourth trumpet. The fifth trumpet is blown. And now we have another Old Testament image dragged into the new locusts or grasshoppers. So we have uh, locusts to harm those without a seal on their heads. So the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to the language. The star, which we would agree is an inanimate object normally, is described using the masculine pronoun in the next phrase. The star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke from like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given uh, power like the power of scorpions on earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, which is normally what locusts would do. They don't chew on people. But these locusts are different. They're more like scorpions, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the, to- like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So in the previous chapters, generally speaking, a star is considered a literal object, an animate object. But this star appears to be a person because it is described in chapter 9, verse 1 as a he. I want to take you to two uh, other biblical texts, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Maybe these will help us to understand what's going on here. So let's go back to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 14. 
Isaiah 14, and we're going to look at verses 12 to, um, to 17. Uh, Isaiah 14, 12 to 17. Now, go right back to verse 3. Uh, the prophets, the, the MO of the prophets is to pronounce judgment, but also to hold out the promise of uh, hope and restoration. And hope and restoration comes in the form of, okay, you're going to get back to the land if you're out of it. You're going to get kids if there's been fertility issues. You're going to get grain and supplies if there's been a lack thereof. And we're going to beat the tar out of your enemies since they've been beating the tar out of you. So therefore, in some of the prophets, there are uh, woes or judgments pronounced against pagan kings or godless people that have been persecuting or pestering the Jews. And this is a taunt or a warning against the king of Babylon. Now, chances are he never read it, never heard of it, but it would still have encouraged the Jewish believer who's been suffering under God's wrath, that God is one day going to beat their enemy up because they're now following him. So that's the context. So you look there, it says in verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, so go down to verses um, 12 to 17 then. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Again, Babylon was a very powerful nation. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is getting very blasphemous. But you are brought down to Sheol, that's the grave, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? Okay, so these, these clearly are uh, interesting words of judgment, very specifically spoken against Babylon. Now, I want you to go to Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Luke 10, 18. So let's go back to 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So these were 72 sent out to evangelize. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemies and nothing shall hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Biblical prophecy is very complex. And one of the interesting thing, things about biblical prophecy is double meaning and double fulfillment. Oftentimes, when you're reading through the New Testament, you'll encounter a New Testament writer that will quote an Old Testament prophecy in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said, and he'll quote it. But if you're an astute student of Scripture, if you go back, more often than not, and you read the prophecy in its original context, you're thinking, this guy just pulled that out of context. Because the way he's saying it's being fulfilled is clearly not what Isaiah or Ezekiel intended. And you all know, because you all went to high school, I assume, that if you quote something, not only do you need to footnote it, but you've got to quote it in context. And we have a very specific understanding of what quoting something in context is and quoting something out of context looks like, right? We all understand that. And so because we have these understandings in our society, we sometimes assume that the way you are allowed to use a quote or an idea from someone else is, has to be in the same context as the way it was originally used. But in fact, in my course on Bible study methods, what I teach is what I was taught, and that is that there are over 10 legitimate ways that New Testament, either, New Testament writers can utilize or quote from Old Testament sources that were legitimate in their day and age. And it may be something as simple as they're just borrowing the same language, and their readership would have understood that they're not talking about a literal fulfillment in that sense, but a fulfillment on the level of just using the same lingo. And there's a whole bunch of other reasons why how you can legitimately use the Old Testament in the New. There's actually a whole field of study in biblical interpretation called the use of the Old Testament in the New. And it's actually quite fascinating. Nevertheless, if you're reading the uh, Isaiah text, it's very clear, very clear that he's speaking about Babylon. He names Babylon. But Jesus seems to be referring to that episode or a like episode, and he applies it to Satan. So like, did, did Jesus like score a D in biblical interpretation? <laughs> no, because there are not only legitimate ways to use Old Testament scripture in the new, in their culture, to make a certain point, but there's also a sense in biblical prophecy in which there can be layers of fulfillment or meaning. So while that prophecy at face value may refer to Babylon, it also may have a secondary or underlying meaning referring to Satan, for instance, because in a sense, Babylon represents the same kind of things that Satan represents, that which is opposed to God. Just by the way, another example of this is Isaiah 7, the virgin shall be with child, she shall bear a son. Okay, that's referring to a literal physical son that Isaiah's wife gave birth to. Maharshal Hashbaz. However, that, pro that prophecy is interpreted as having a double meaning to Christ. And that's how the New Testament writers understood it. Now, if you don't understand that, it's only going to take one atheist to come up to you and rock your boat by saying, oh, didn't you read around Isaiah 7? Because his wife had a child. And by the way, she wasn't a virgin. This wasn't a virgin birth. So your Bible's wrong. But if you understand the use of 
the, the nature of biblical prophecy and how Old Testament can be used in the New, it actually makes a lot of sense. But it requires, you know, a bit of work in culture. So, I'm referencing uh, these two passages for you to point out that um, in our passage in Revelation, where it talks about a star and then refers to him as a he, that the, the, uh, the Apostle John may in fact be referring to Satan himself as being the he who in some way is cast down to earth and is the one who opens the bottomless shaft and who releases his satanic hordes to perform the work that he wants to perform. I also want to take you to Revelation chapter 20 because this also forwards the conversation, kind of adds to our desire to try to interpret this properly where it, it talks about, um, this is Revelation uh, 20, verses 1 to 3. It says, uh, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now he is, this is yet future from the event we're looking at. He's holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit. Similar language. And a great chain. And he seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan. He binds him for a thousand years, throws him into the pit, shuts it, seals it that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Then he's going to be released for a little while. So it, it's likely then, just because of the similarity of language, that the star fallen from heaven, who's given the key to the bottomless, bottomless pit, is a reference to Satan's involvement. So God permits him in some way to uh, release demonic destruction upon the earth. Now, the demonic destruction is described using something that would, that would have been very terrifying to, maybe not so much to people in the Greco-Roman world, but certainly to people in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that would have been locust plagues. Now, if you get a chance, like, go on Google and just Google like locust plagues in recent history. And it, like it's unbelievable how these things can multiply and like, decimate know, like hundreds of acres of land of, uh, you know, in, in, in the Middle East or in, uh, in Asia. So the locusts symbolize destructive forces. And uh, the five months that's being referred to here, um, we, we need to be a little bit careful about how we understand that. But five months is likely the amount of time in a given year when locust plagues were a real threat to people in an agrarian culture. So they weren't around 12 months of the year. They had a lifespan. So it may be that the five months is figurative, tied into the idea of maybe they, the readers would have been aware that locusts more or less were a threat five months out of 12. Or um, it, it may mean that there's some unspecified five-month period in the tribulation or in the future or if you're a historicist in history past, that's, that's being referred to here, but we just don't really know what that is. Scorpions, of course, symbolize pain. I've never been bitten by a scorpion. Not sure if I've ever seen a living one, but apparently they hurt. And yet, despite the demonic attack, it indicates that um, uh, believers or you know, people that, if this is in the tribulation, 
uh, believers that are perhaps coming to Christ will be saved from this wrath. So it says they were allowed, this is verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, sorry, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass, and then the end of the verse, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, what's the seal of God on their foreheads? Think last week. What is that all about? Passing over people that are saved, right? The believing community. Apparently, there were certain um, religions in that time period that would mark the forehead of worshipers of a given deity. And, you know, while that's not in Judaism or Christianity, it's still in Hinduism, of course, uh, he may be taking that cultural notion and sort of applying it to help them figuratively understand that these are believers uh, in the future. They will be saved from wrath. And then finally for tonight, it says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads, uh, were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. So these are, these are obviously not literal locusts. They're pretty weird looking. They were, they're like horses. They have crowns of gold. Their faces are like human faces. Their hair is like a woman's hair, meaning long. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses, horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. We've already encountered the bottomless pit. It's mentioned again in uh, Revelation. Presumably it's not the angel holding the great chain because that angel in Revelation 20 is God's agent. But this angel is described as Abaddon or Apollyon. Now, both of these words um, mean destroyer. So, I mean, it could be God's agent to bring about destruction, or it could be, uh, you know, a reference to Satan or the devil and, uh, you know, his figurative role as sort of an, an angel or some sort of a... Um, uh, an agent on God's behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's true. As best as we understand, Satan is, is some sort of a um, fallen angel. So someone's asking me a question here, but I'm not sure if I have time to look it up, think about it, and give you an answer without making you wait. Oh, okay. So someone just asked me about Second Thessalonians nine twelve. So second, no, second Thessalonians two nine to twelve, and um, that reads: the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So that's been interpreted, again, different ways. Some people say that the lawless one is sort of the general ethos of a fallen world where there's lies, there's deceit, there's a twisting of truth. 
uh, right through to those that would say this is, this is the antichrist who will present himself as one who is palatable, believable, maybe likable, but ultimately is a, a, a twister of truth, um, one who will lead people astray, uh, one who will perform false signs and wonders. So whereas Christ and the apostles uh, produced genuine signs and wonders, uh, he will mimic them maybe to get people's attention, to get people to follow him, but, but ultimately will be uh, a liar. And it's a good reminder to us that um, uh, we probably uh, have to be more careful with people who know a lot of truth but mix in error than people who are just overtly, openly, opposed to the things of God. Um, I mean, it's, I almost would prefer to hang out with an atheist or a person of a different world religion because it's very clear coming into the relationship or conversation, here's where I stand, here's where they stand, and it, the, the, the lines are clearly drawn, than someone who claims to be a Christian, but you're, you just kind of feel uncomfortable with their teaching, or there's, there's some truth there, and so you appreciate that, but there's some, some twisting, there's some subtleties that you don't feel quite comfortable with. That, that can be a more dangerous person, because there's enough truth there to make them believable, maybe even get a following, and maybe even to plant a church, but there's, there's, there's something about their teaching or their, their ways that um, you know, make us uncomfortable or make you uncomfortable. So the, the, this lawless one, whether it's a figure of all things or a specific person, is going to be that kind of a person. So I hope that helps whoever asked the question. I know you texted me, so, but when I upgraded to iOS 8, when people text me that otherwise have my contacts, it just comes through as a phone number, so I don't even know who texted me anymore. Okay, so um, what time is it? 8.30. Any questions or comments before we leave? Okay, so you'll all be here next week? No. No, okay, good. You'll be here the week after? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs>